right, well, we are back in the book of Mark, and I could not be more excited. Today we have a fantastic passage to look at. Uh, if, you, if you didn't hear earlier, my name is Adam, so if you're new here, we're really glad that you're joining us. We are in the middle of a, a pretty long study of the gospel of Mark, and we're nearing the end now. So we're in chapter 14, and I can't wait to get into this together. Uh, but before we do, I'm curious, have any of you ever had an epic fail Like you just, you thought you had a really good idea and you thought it was going to be executed perfectly and it just failed in spectacular fashion. Is anyone here willing to admit I have had an epic fail at some point in my life? You've all seen these, right? You've all watched these online videos of people that had an epic fail, stories of people with an epic fail. I read about a guy in Wisconsin who, I don't know why I say he's from Wisconsin. He was, but it's really not important for you to know that. But I read about a guy who was going to, paint the outside of his house and he had a really clever idea for how to remove the old flaking paint so that the new paint would stick. He thought that he could uh, burn it off with a blowtorch. And, and I'm happy to tell you, he was successful in removing most of the paint and most of the walls. We, we have all had, I think, if we're being really honest, some epic fails in our life. Sometimes those failures have long-lasting effects, right? Especially if it's a moral or a spiritual failure. It's something that can live with us for a long time. And after we've had an epic fail, there's a temptation for us to think that maybe God is kind of done with us at that point. And what is there left for us? We've already failed once, we're just going to fail again. Maybe we're just a waste of time for him. Maybe you picked some bad friends in high school or college, And you made some decisions now that you really regret and you think may have just kind of ruined your life. Or maybe your marriage or your parenting has been far from perfect and you regret some things that you've done there. Maybe you got into some questionable activity and you never got caught but it still sticks with you. Or maybe you did get caught and it sticks with you. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. And you never really got serious about your faith. And so you made some decisions along the way. And now you're kind of wondering because of those bad decisions, can I ever get my life back on track again? Or have I blown it? Is it done for me now? What I want to talk about with you today is life on the other side of failure. What does life look like on the other side of failure? And what hope is there for us in that? If you've ever failed big, which I think most of us have, you know what it's like to fear your future. Because if you've failed big, if you've messed up big time, then you know that after that's done, you kind of start wondering about what does the future look like for me? And there's an anxiousness that sets in. You kind of feel useless at that point, like you're just going to fail again. And anxiety sets in. And after anxiety, there's often kind of a despair. And despair leads to depression. And depression comes with hopelessness. And you just feel like there's no hope because of that big mistake that I made. Where do I go from here? And oftentimes, if hopelessness is allowed to continue in our minds and in our thought processes, then that hopeless leads to us thinking, is there any point? Is there any point in continuing living? Because I've messed up big. So our identity becomes wrapped up in a past failure or failures. See, if this really resonates with you, every time your life starts to go well and things seem like they're finally falling into place, your brain 
your memory brings up something from the past that you made a mistake in. Anybody, anybody relate to that? Every time it starts to go well, all of a sudden your brain just kind of throws this thing back at you. Like, remember that thing that you did? And all of a sudden you go into this cycle again of wondering, am I ever going to get past that? What does life look like on the other side of failure? If any of that describes you, then maybe you've wrestled with questions like these. How can God ever fix this? Or why would God ever want to use me in any kind of a significant, meaningful way? I mean, doesn't God want to really use those kind of more perfect people? Doesn't God want to use those people that sort of have it all together? You know, the ones who, who not only do they do their quiet time every day, but their quiet time is always Instagram worthy. <laughs> They've got the Bible laid out on the table with the coffee cup and the bookmark and the book over here. And they just snap a picture of it and their Bible has all these words written in it and lines that connect the words and the more colors they use, the more spiritual they are. And they snap a picture of that, you know, and put it on Instagram, hashtag blessed, hashtag Proverbs 31 woman, hashtag she reads truth. I'm not, I'm not mocking you if you like to post your devotions on Instagram. I haven't seen any of you do that, but if you want to do that, there's no judgment here, okay? John, John Acuff has this bit where he says, hey, if a, if a Christian does their quiet time and doesn't post it on Instagram, did it really happen? <laughs> Look, if you want to post on Instagram, I'm not going to knock you on that. But what I want to talk about today is people who've really messed up. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've messed up big. Maybe you've messed up big this week. There were people that I talked to after the early service who said, it's like you were just talking straight to me because this week this happened or this month this happened. Some big stuff, some big mistakes. And here's the thing. The Bible is full of people who messed up big, really big. And God still used them. It's almost like God likes to use people who messed up big so that he gets the glory. I'm not sure if there's any correlation there or not. You know, Moses disobeyed a direct command from God when he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. David had a man killed because he wanted to pursue his wife. Samson gave up his connection with God that gave him strength to pursue an untrustworthy woman. And Jonah ran away from God because for some reason he didn't think God would be any good at hide and seek. Spoiler alert, God's pretty good. And that's just the Old Testament. We're going to be in the New Testament today. Mark chapter 14. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. You can use the YouVersion Bible app or you can go to efree.org slash Bible. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this passage of Mark 14, 27 through 52 and we're going to break it up into three chunks and these three chunks are three different true stories from the life of Jesus. And we're going to look at three different failures, big failures, from a guy named Peter. So let's read the first section together. This is Mark 14, verse 27. Here's what it says. On the way, Jesus told them, all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter said to him, even if everyone else 
deserts you, I never will. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. Here's the context to what we're talking about. Jesus and his 12 closest disciples, the apostles, had just shared a Passover meal together right before this. And it was at that Passover meal that Jesus instituted the practice of communion, where we remember the the death and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But that death and sacrifice hadn't happened yet at this point in the text. And so everything we're reading is pointing toward that future moment. Jesus is preparing himself. He's preparing his disciples for what they are about to go through. And he's, he's getting them ready. But here's the thing. Jesus already knows they're going to fail. He already knows it. He understands that. He knows that when he is taken, they are going to scatter like sheep. So he reminds them of this prophecy from a guy named Zechariah from over 500 years earlier. So Jesus pulls his disciples around. He says, hey guys, check this out. You remember that prophet Zechariah? You know, the one that's in your baseball card collection, like this awesome prophet that that you guys love? Over 500 years ago, he wrote this. You remember this? How the the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is that prophecy, it's about you. How cool is that? Over 500 years ago, the prophet Zechariah, who's like, whoa, Zechariah is amazing. He wrote this about you. Well, that's awesome, Jesus. What's the bad news? The bad news is you're not the shepherd. You're the pathetic little sheep that run away when the shepherd is struck. Now, I think sheep get kind of a bad rap, right? We always think of sheep as these dumb and defenseless creatures. And as an important part of my sermon preparation this week, I watched a lot of YouTube videos of animals attacking sheep. It was a great use of my time. And I find it fascinating how when a predator attacks a herd of sheep, they, they go after the weakest one, they grab it, and all the other sheep just kind of scatter away, run away, right? They're all afraid. And then they all stop, and they turn back about 50 feet away, and they just watch their buddy getting eaten. Like, why would they do that? And it made me think, wouldn't it be cool if sheep were more like dogs, Right? Can you imagine if dogs produced wool that we actually wanted? Like nobody wants a dog hair coat, but if they produced wool. And so as a shepherd, instead of having a hundred fluffy little dumb sheep running around, you could have a hundred of man's best friend. And they're just romping around with their fluffy little bodies, you know. And every time you need to move them from one place to another place, you just kind of whistle and say, come on boys. And they'll go, oh, this is my favorite thing. Let's go. You'd never have to have guard dogs because they're just dogs. They come with you and they love being there. And can you imagine if a predator were to stalk and try to attack that group, right? And they get a little close and all of a sudden they, they start to realize they've made a huge tactical error as dozens of these fluffy little dogs surround them and start to attack the predator. I just think that'd be really cool. But not sheep. Sheep aren't like that. 
Sheep scatter. And Jesus says, you guys, you disciples, you are going to scatter like sheep. Why on earth would Jesus tell them this? Hey, guess what? You're going to (laughs) fail. You're going to fail me. You're going to betray me. You're going to run away from me big time. Why would Jesus tell them that? I think it's because he wanted to give them hope. See, they're going to fail. There's no way around that. They will fail. But Jesus wants to give them hope. And this is so important for us to understand that there is always hope on the other side of failure. There's always hope on the other side of failure. And you may be sitting there right now and finding that really hard to believe because you're in the midst of something. Or something keeps coming back into your mind of past failure. Something that that the enemy would just love to keep there in the forefront of your mind because it cripples you. It's become your identity. Maybe not to others, but at least to you. And so you find it hard to believe right now that there is hope on the other side of failure. But you need to understand that with Jesus, there is always hope on the other side of failure. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So Jesus wanted to prepare his disciples for their future failure, but so that they would have hope. And he says in verse 28, but after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Listen, guys, you're gonna mess up, okay? Just between you and me, you are going to mess up, but I will still be with you. You're going to fail me, but my plans for you aren't over. Of course, that wasn't good enough for Peter. Peter wasn't going to scatter away from Jesus. So he says, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, there's a spot in your weekly to do that. The first failure of Peter here in this passage is pride. I'm different, Jesus. I'm better than all of them. Yeah, you're right. Those losers, they probably are going to scatter away from you, but not me, not Peter. Peter's strong like bull. I will stay here and defend you, you know? Peter is this guy who is not going to allow any of this stuff to dissuade him. He is convinced that he will be able to stay with Jesus. He has this pride. And one of the most dangerous places for you and me to be in is this comfortable place of pride where we think that we cannot fall. It's an incredibly dangerous place to be in. Because when we think we cannot fall, we stop relying on God. We stop spending time with God, growing our relationship with God, walking with him closely, drawing on his power. We start to rely on our own strength instead of him who is the source of our strength. And and when we think we're at our strongest, we're actually at our weakest because we've disconnected from the source that can make us strong. Think about Samson. You remember Samson? A man blessed by God with superhuman strength. So long as he maintained his connection with God and was obedient to God. And what did Samson do? He gave it up. He let go of his connection with God. And here's the scary part about that story. It's not that he got captured and had his eyes gouged out and had to pull down the temple and it fell on him and killed him and all that stuff. It's not that. The scariest part of Samson is that the Bible says after he lost that connection with God, after he lost his strength coming from God, the Bible says that he got up when his enemies were upon him and he went out to defeat them like he had before and he didn't realize that God had left him. That's the scary part of that. It's when we become prideful 
And when we think we can do it on our own, that's the most dangerous point. Because then we don't even realize we don't have the strength of God in our life anymore. We have to understand this. Before temptation and before failure, there is always, always pride. So Jesus responds. This is verse 30. He says, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And for some reason, Peter thinks that he can predict the future better than the Messiah. So he says, no, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. Now notice something about what Peter does here. Because Peter doesn't say, by the grace of God, I will not deny you. Peter doesn't listen to Jesus' prediction and get down on his knees and say, God, would you, would you give me the strength and the courage to stand strong in the, in the face of this, this coming trial that Jesus is talking about? No. He stands on his own two feet. I can stand firm. I can do this. I can handle this on my own. I won't scatter no matter what those other guys do or what that prophet 500 years ago said. So Peter's first failure is pride. Next story. Verse 32. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. I want to show you what this looks like because this was a favorite place of Jesus. Now it's been manicured up a little bit more today, but these are, these are pictures from present day. If you are going with us to Israel next year, you're, you're going to see this garden yourself. These are all olive trees. This is on the Mount of Olives. And so somewhere around here was the Garden of Gethsemane, this private garden that uh, Gethsemane means oil press. So there was an oil press there and it was this private uh, grove of olive trees that they would pick the olives and squeeze and press them out. Uh, some scholars have likened this setting uh, and the pressing of the olives, the crushing of the olives to get the oil to how Jesus would soon be crushed himself and drawn some parallels there. This was a favorite place of Jesus to go with his disciples. It was calm, it was peaceful, it was tranquil, it was serene. They could be alone here. He could pray here. So he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. A couple of important things here. My soul is crushed with grief. Keep watch with me. Very important. He went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, he uses his old name, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. What does he want them to do? Keep watch, pray, don't give in to temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then Jesus left them again. And pray the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping. For they couldn't keep their eyes open. 
And they didn't know what to say. They were speechless, no excuses. When he returned to them the third time, he said, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest, but no, the time has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Now, chances are you have different levels of friends in your life, right? You've got some friends that you see only on an occasional basis. You know, a few times a year, you know their names. Maybe you know what they do for a living. You don't know much else about them. Then you've got those people that you see on a regular basis. At work, at school, at church. And you know them fairly well. They're good friends of yours. But you probably got one or two, maybe three super close friends who you'd share just about anything with. That epic fail that popped into your mind at the beginning of today's message, they know about that. But probably very few others do. They're the people that you call first when something bad happens. They're the people that get the text right away when something good happens. And if Jesus had a cell phone, Peter, James, and John would always be in the recent contacts. These guys were his inner circle. These were the three guys that Jesus would pull aside every now and then and explain things that he didn't share with all the others. These were the three guys that got to see him transform into his glory. These were his inner circle, his small group. Jesus had a mid-sized group he was a part of and he had a small group he was a part of. And honestly, that's one of the reasons why we believe here that groups are so important to being a part of the body of Christ. Jenny and I are in a mid-sized group and a small group. One of, our, one of our groups meets tonight. And we think it's so critically important that everyone be in a group of some kind of fellow believers who can walk through life with you and support you when you need it. And what Jesus needs here from his small group is their support. He needs their encouragement. He needs them to pray for him. But just when he needs the support of his small group the most... They fall asleep. And he even told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. That word for being crushed with grief, it's the strongest word he could possibly use. It means that he was experiencing deep, intense psychological anguish over the thing that he was about to endure. We have to remember that Yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And he was tempted in every way the same as we are, the Bible says. And this was an incredible thing he was about to go through. Never before had the Son of God experienced separation from the Father God. Never before had the Son of God had sin placed upon him. Not that he committed, but that he took on for everyone else. Because of our sin, you and I each deserve an eternity separated from God, an eternal punishment. And so Jesus, when he died on the cross, not only was there the physical pain and agony, but that was nothing compared to the separation from God that he experienced and the billions of eternities of punishment that God placed on him to pay for our sin. That's what Jesus was about to go through. That's what he was about to experience. And Peter has no idea the significance of what is happening here. 
Jesus tells the group, stay alert, keep watch, stay focused, stay up with me, pray. And then he continues to find them sleeping. Imagine that you just learned that you have a terminal disease. Late stage, you have a week to live. And so you call your closest friends and you ask them to come over and support you. And you say you want to pray. And so you all kind of gather around and and you start to pray. And about 10 seconds later, you hear a, a weird kind of noise and you lift your head up and they're all sleeping. Every one of them. So you wake him up. Come on, guys, I need your support. I need, you to, I need you to be with me here. I need you to pray with me. And you start to pray again. And 15 seconds later, you kind of get this feeling like you're the only one in the room. And you look up and they're all sleeping again. And so you do it a third time. And again, they're all sleeping. And suddenly you realize, I don't think that this group of friends is as supportive as I thought they were. I don't think that they really care about me. So think about what Jesus is dealing with right now the most incredible anguish, the most incredible torment that we could ever imagine to have all of that punishment placed upon him and separated from God and what he was about to experience, which none of us can ever actually understand or relate to, and yet when he needed his small group to support him the most, they're all sleeping. They have no idea how important this night is. They have no idea what's about to happen. And let me tell you why. Because just a couple days earlier, They entered the city of Jerusalem to a parade fit for a king. The crowds were cheering. They loved them. Jesus outwitted the temple leaders. He threw out the money changers. When the temple leaders tried to accuse him, he shut them down with one simple question. The crowds were on the side of Jesus. The Bible says that they gathered around him at this time and they listened to his teaching with delight. New followers were joining their cause every single day. The religious leaders, we know from the text, were secretly planning to kill Jesus at this time, but they were afraid to do it because the crowds supported him. When the disciples needed a Passover meal, they found the room and the setup all there waiting for them, miraculously arranged for them. Jesus was regularly beating the Pharisees and the Sadducees at their own game. And so the traps that they had set for him, he would turn around so eloquently and trap them in their own words. The 12 disciples had just had that evening a little recommitment ceremony where they all agreed, we will never leave you. We will never scatter. We will never deny you. We are here. They vowed it. They had a recommitment Their movement had never been stronger. Their future had never been brighter. Things were going so well for them. And yeah, Jesus was talking about death and resurrection and scattering like sheep, but that must be some kind of a metaphor. That's a parable. He's trying to teach us something. Things were going really, really well for these guys in this context. See, they don't know what we know. They think this is going great. And now, tonight, they're at one of their favorite places. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane, this peaceful, tranquil, serene, wonderful place to be. And it's here that their overconfidence turns to weakness. The failure is not just Peter's, but it's Peter alone that Jesus chastises. Because Peter is a leader. He should have been an example to the other two. And so the failure here is complacency. 
It's the opposite of keeping watch and staying alert. Complacency is the natural successor to pride. Things are going pretty well. Maybe I can ease up a little bit. Maybe I don't need to spend as much time one-on-one with God. Maybe I can spend more time with my friends and in my hobbies. And when we think we are at our strongest is when we are most vulnerable to temptation. Because that is when our flesh is weak and we give in to things that we know we shouldn't. We don't have our defenses up because we haven't invested in our walk with God. And here is Peter who didn't understand the urgency of this situation. Why? Because he wasn't paying attention to Jesus. He wasn't attentive. Jesus was telling him this stuff and Peter did not realize the urgency of the situation. And so they slept. The second failure was complacency. Last story. Verse 43. And immediately, even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders. The traitor Judas had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Then you can take him away under guard. As soon as they arrived, Judas walked up to Jesus. Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him the kiss. That was a normal greeting. But by kissing him first, by greeting him first, they would know that he was the one. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Jesus asked them, am I some dangerous revolutionary? That you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day. But these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. Then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. One young man following behind was clothed in only a long linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. Just as Jesus had predicted that very night, the disciples scattered like sheep. They abandoned him. Now, one of them did try to defend Jesus with his sword, but here's the thing. Even that was a failure because that was not the kind of support that Jesus wanted. That was not the kind of support that Jesus had been asking for all night long. Luke tells us that while Jesus was being arrested, some of the disciples turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, do you want us to defend you with swords? But one of those disciples, he says, just charged right in. Didn't wait for an answer. Didn't ask Jesus. Just decided to to start cutting. Matthew says that Jesus rebuked that man for not trusting in him and in God. He said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But only John in his gospel reveals who this careless, untrusting, rogue disciple was. He says, then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. Strike three, Peter. He failed because of his pride He failed because of his complacency, and here he fails because of his self-sufficiency. The other disciples at least asked Jesus what he wanted them to do, but Peter was way ahead of them. And as it turns out, Peter was way ahead of where Jesus wanted him to be as well. Now, I have to be honest with you. Peter's failures are the same 
failures that I struggle with all the time. Pride, complacency, self-sufficiency, I often fall into those traps and I catch myself as I'm about to launch into something realizing that I'm just starting to do this in my own strength and I haven't even stopped to ask God, is this this what you want me to do? Is this where you're guiding? How do you want me to approach it? God, would you bless this? Is this going to glorify you, Lord? Is Is this within your will? Is this what you want me to do? And so I launch into things in my own self-sufficiency and my own pride without taking the time to involve God in my life. I think that all of us probably do this a lot more than we realize. Because even the normal daily routines that we get into, the normal things that we do, if we approach them from a mindset of prayer and worshiping God and glorifying God, those are acts of worship to him if approached with the right mindset. The problem is we so often get into autopilot and we just kind of think that we can do everything on our own. And we get lulled into this false sense of safety, thinking that we don't need him. Maybe not consciously, but subconsciously. How often do we slip into that mindset of thinking, I'm good, I got this. I do it all the time. And then I have to catch myself and go, oh, I'm sorry, God. That's right, I need you. I need you every day. I need your strength. I need your grace every single day. Peter failed because of pride. He failed because of complacency. He failed because of self-sufficiency. What a loser, right? I mean, Jesus is done with Peter at this point. Come on, three strikes and you're out, man. Peter messed up big time. I mean, why would Jesus want to forgive this guy and do anything else with him He's probably going to move on to somebody that was a little less of a loser, had a little more of his act put together, had the right things going on. Jesus is going to move on after this, right? Peter walked with Jesus for three years. Peter lived with Jesus. He worked with Jesus. He had this close connection with Jesus. And for him to blow it like this, the very night that he committed to never leave or deny Jesus, he's done. He's through with But then we read what Paul says years later when he writes to the churches in Galatia. Here's what he says in chapter two. We're we're joining midstream here. So he says, instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospels to the Gentiles just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me, Paul says, as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, the trio of losers who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me and they accepted Barnabas and me as their coworkers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. And if you only remember one thing from today, I really hope it's this. God always has a plan on the other side of failure. God always has a plan on the other side of failure. So I think there are probably people who are listening here today or online right now who have taken themselves out of the game because of a past mistake. 
They feel like there's nothing more they can do to contribute. They feel like there's no way God would want to fix their mess. They feel like there's nothing else he wants to do through them. And what they don't realize is that God always has a plan on the other side of failure. And God has given you gifts and abilities and he's prepared good things for you to do and he wants you to do them and he wants to use you. And for some reason, God chooses to use the weak to confound the strong, the foolish to confound the wise. Over and over, God says, I want to take someone who's messed up and I want to use them to do something awesome because if I do that, no one's going to say that they did that on their own. After everything Peter did, no one looked at that and goes, he was awesome. He was strong. He stood firm. No, he didn't. That's the point. He was frail. He was weak. He was a sheep. And God took him and did something incredible with his life because Peter surrendered to him. So let me ask you, how bad have you screwed up? How bad have you messed up? How big is your epic fail? Is it lived and walked with Jesus for three years, then promised never to leave him or deny him and then abandon him when he needed you the most and then deny him three times and claim that you never even knew him? Because that was pretty embarrassing for Peter. That was a big deal. I don't know how you recover from that. I don't know how you come back from that without God. God always has a plan on the other side of failure. And years later, Peter would write this in one of his letters. This is in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, and this is amazing, stay alert. I looked at the original language. That's the exact same word used in Mark 14. What Jesus told Peter, Peter now tells believers, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Don't let the temptation for pride or complacency or self-sufficiency, that temptation from the enemy to take you out of the game. Don't let past failures that have plagued your mind and your memory keep you from doing what God wants you to do, becoming what God wants you to become. Because God always has a plan on the other side of failure. He has given you gifts. He has given you abilities. He wants to work through you. I don't know how yet. You may not know how yet, but you've got to get back in the game. You've got to serve him. You can't just sit on the sidelines. You can't allow your past mistakes to define your present or your future. You have to understand that God wants to work through you and do things through you and grow you. And if he can do that with Peter, who messed up big time, he can do that with you. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, this is something that I wrestle with. And I think a lot of people here do too. We fail so often. We're frail. We're like sheep. I admit it. I'm a sheep. Are you a sheep? Everybody say, I'm a sheep. Everybody say, I'm a sheep. We can all talk while we pray. God, we are. We're sheep. We scatter. We run away from you. We do stupid stuff. We say stupid things. And, and you are always there, always faithful. See, even when we say, I will never deny you, there are moments when when we do things that in effect do deny your power and your presence and your strength in our life. 
And you're the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Lord, we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy. We're so thankful for how you work in our lives, even after we mess up big. So my prayer for everyone here today and everyone watching online, Lord, is that you would help us to recover and heal from those past mistakes, that you would help us to not wallow in them or be victimized by them or let that become our new identity because of what we've done, but allow you to be our identity and to seek out how you want to use us for your plan on the other side of our failure. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, if this struck a chord with you today, and you need prayer for something, please come up. would love to talk with you, pray with you. We'll have a prayer team up here. I pray that you'll have a wonderful week and we'll see you next Sunday.